So this night, I'm going to be talking about something rather scary, but I hope by the end of it, you're going to feel empowered to go and do a lot yourselves. Uh, it's about antimicrobial resistance. It's been in the newspapers a great deal. And I'm going to look a little bit behind the science of these pathogenic bacteria, uh, look, at their look at antibiotic resistance, and I'm going to ask you what you think you can do if I give you some hints. I should say that this is not the first time that this topic has been addressed by the college. Um, both Professors William Aliff and Christopher Whitty have actually addressed different parts of it. So please take a look at their lectures. They're online and they're really, really fascinating. But you have to do some work. So I'm going to give you a quiz. All right. So we're going to have a quiz, see how you get on. And I promise I'll give you the answers at the end. All right. So you don't have to take notes, but just kind of keep a keep a mental map of what you answered, and then when we get to the end, you can see with great satisfaction that you will get, I'm sure, 100%. So, question number one. Antibiotics are powerful medicines that help fight A, B, or C. Okay? Don't, don't, don't say it. I've got an expert down here at the front. I'm, I'm holding him fully accountable, and if he changes his mind at the end, I tell you, we're going to have words. Right, that's question number one. Question number two. Antibiotic resistance happens when my body becomes resistant to antibiotics, true or false. Okay. Number three, antibiotic resistant bacteria can spread to humans through, and then there's a whole variety of them, contact with people who've got the infection, contact with something that's been touched, contact with a live animal, food or water, all of the above. Question number four. Oops, sorry. Question number four, what could happen if I get an antibiotic-resistant infection. There's a whole range of things that potentially could happen to you. And then question five. I can help tackle antibiotic resistance if I... And then there's some choices there. Okay? So see if you can remember which ones you answered. It's not going to be checked when you go out, but, you know, just, just keep it in your mind. So let's get down to business. Microbes have been around for a long time, billions of years. In fact, very recently, a new type of uh, fossil was found which takes the date right back to 3.7 billion years ago. So they're not new on planet Earth. There's a whole variety of them. They come in all shapes and sizes, but essentially they're usually a few micrometers high uh, in size. And then you can see spherical ones, cocci, rod-like ones, bacilli, helical ones, spiruli, and vibrios. They're everywhere. Of course, they're on us, they're on our animals, they're in soils, freshwater, oceans, hot springs, radioactive waste. We've even started to find them up in the atmosphere and deep into the Earth's crust. So they can live symbiotically, they can live parasitically. So pretty much, they're the kind of things that have been around a long time. The science of microbiology, just very quickly, if you don't recall it from your studies at school, goes back a long time. We had Anton van Leeuwenhoek, who very, very um, expeditiously invented a small little microscope, as you might call it, and then started to put things under it. His tooth plaque, kind of not very nice, but anyway. He sort of found all sorts of living things and made beautiful, beautiful drawings of them. But at the same time, we had a lot of herbalists who were detecting a whole range of plants that had possible and potential effects for different kinds of diseases and illnesses. And John Parkinson's is absolutely beautiful book, Theatricum, uh, Theatrum Botanicum, published in 1640, contains some most extraordinary and accurate descriptions of how plants can literally be used for very, very precise purposes. 
What's fascinating now is that when you look at them and we understand the biochemistry that's in those plants, how well matched they are between the actual disease and the treatment that they were used for. So we've got things like sage and hyssop and motherwort and so forth. Now I'm going to come back to these because one of the questions is, if I'm taking hermal remedies, will that in any way enhance if I get given a course of antibiotics? And here the answer is, be very careful. So let's, uh, let's put that one on the side, but I will come back to it. Now, obviously, knowledge of bacteria has grown. We've got enormous amounts of people who've been working on it. The challenge is that about half of them don't grow in the laboratory. So we have bacteria for which we have no assays. We have a, a characteristic called the gram stain. They can be positive or negative. Very useful device because some antibiotics affect gram negative and not gram positive and vice versa. We know that bacteria are extremely important in our lives. Uh, they produce beautiful cheeses, Hemtala, um, Jarlsberg, many other things. So we need them, things like Streptococcus, uh, Lactobacillus, and, and so forth. So they're kind of a stalwart of life as we know it, and they create many, many great things. However, we have a lot of pathogenic bacteria. They are the cause of distress, of destruction, of pestilence, of pandemics, epidemics, all kinds of bad things. The number of them, though, is relatively small. It's about 100 that really do most of the damage. And so from a medical and public health point of view, really focusing on them is the preoccupation of today. One of the deadliest, or one of the best known, I would say, is mycobacterium, tuberculosis, uh, tuberculosis and that of course, we document very well. It kills about 2 million people a year, certainly where I come from in sub-Saharan Africa. And it is true to say, at the end of the day, that if you look at the damage that's been caused by bacteria, irreparably in some cases because of famines and wars, you could generally say that human history has been driven by bacteria. Now, globally, pathogenic bacteria contribute, yes, to millions of deaths. They're present in many, many infant mortality uh, situations. They cause widespread disease, as I say. Uh, pneumonia, foodborne illnesses, infections, tetanus, typhoid, diphtheria, syphilis, leprosy. The whole list goes on. It's endless. But it is about the scientists themselves who've also studied them. They are inspiring stories. Uh, whether they're in real life, like uh, Fleming's work on penicillin, starting in 1929, all the way through to Gabriel Garcia and his work, for example, on love in a time of cholera, where, okay, yes, he won the Nobel Prize, but it's about a doctor who is absolutely committed, uh, almost obsessively, to solving the problem of cholera. So we have a kind of interesting love affair with these things. And the list literally goes on. They're really beautiful when you see them in their different shapes and forms. Take a look at these. Aren't they absolutely stunning? I wouldn't want any of them in me, I have to tell you, but nevertheless, they are stunning. But let me just give you a quick roll call of what these beautiful things can do to you. So Staphylococcus. It's the reason why doctors and nurses, you know, we swab their noses to check before they start the operation, patients as well. Um, there's a very worrying one, which is methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, MRSA you might know it as. Certainly do not want to have that when you're having an operation. Um, we've got a whole range of multi-resistant strains emerging in other areas, but that's the one that appears also to be rather open to joining forces with other bacteria. We've got streptococcus, strep throat, of course, pneumonia, 
salmonella. How many of us have heard about holidays where people have got salmonella poisoning? It's got two deadly strains, enterokey and, and typhi, so typhoid fever, caused nearly 200,000 deaths. In my village, it's rather common when there's a drought. People don't have enough water to wash their hands scrupulously, so it's one of those lesser-known factors of climate change that you are going to see increases in typhoid. So the list goes on and on. Haemophilus, Aspergillus, Brucella. Brucella is a problem in rural areas where you literally don't have the possibility to pasteurize. It's very, very widespread, particularly in Africa, but also in Latin America. Pasteurella, Campylobacter, Legionella, Treponema. These are all names, as I said, that potentially are household and can really cause tremendous problems. Chlamydia on the spread, um, listeria and so forth. But what have scientists done to fight these pathogenic bacteria? Well, in the first place, they've turned to the natural world. As I said, many, many, many antibiotics today have their roots in the natural world. So the herbalists actually went to the core of where the sources lie. The best known, of course, was penicillin. This fungus uh, that we know comes from bread and Roquefort cheese really turned the whole situation around uh, diseases. So when he discovered it, coming back from our August bank holiday, by the way, so you should always take holidays, really good, um, because he didn't potter around in his laboratory that weekend, which meant that, in fact, this is when he actually discovered penicillin. That penicillin G stopped Staphylococcus, and it really stopped it in its tracks. It essentially it blocked the division of the bacteria, which meant it couldn't spread. It also, by the way, blocks it in other lower organisms. But most critically, we now know it can inhibit the growth of a whole variety of gram-positive bacteria. Scarlet fever, pneumonia, meningitis, diphtheria. But not gram-negative, ones such as typhus. Now, penicillin went into commercial production in 1942 in time for the devastation of Pearl Harbor. And in fact, it was because of a philanthropic, I would almost say, action by Merck, where he felt that it was his duty to make sure that the industrial secrets of how you made penicillin should be given over so that the country itself could be made ready should it need it. So here you see penicillin almost becomes the cure for everything. Gonorrhea, you know, it's out on the newsstands. Um, it's, it's almost like the wonder drug. And I'll come to in a way, the psychological impact of having a penicillin around in those days, because it actually stopped research in other areas. It is on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. This is the place where you go if you want to see which are effective and safe medicines. That's very important. But we have penicillin-resistant bacteria increasing. And this is because the way that it has been used in a prolific sense means that it is just literally out there. It's still on the list, it can still be used for streptococci, for staphylococcus, listeria. But it has resistant forms emerging. Commercial production is an interesting issue, and I believe another professor is going to be looking at this in terms of the costs. We've now managed to get the cost of penicillin, penicillin production down in developing countries, certainly, to about two, less than $2 a day. Compare that to the US, and it's between $100 and $200. So... It's, it's an important thing, this issue about pricing of drugs, and we can, we can talk about that. Now, a second group, so slowly, as we go through the century, progress is slowly made, and, and more and more interest is made about 
um, steps forward. And so we have a whole slew of antibiotic agents that start to emerge. Now remember, they're always going back to a natural source to try to find them. So penicillin, worldwide, pretty much all comes from a mouldy cantaloupe in, Idaho, in Illinois. And you, know, you can imagine people scouring the world trying to find mouldy fruit, looking for the best penicillin. And that's part of the history of how antibiotics have been developed. So if we now look at tetracycline, very, very important. Um, it's been out there for obviously quite some time in the 1950s. It actually went into hospitals in the late 1940s. So it's been a kind of sturdy partner in trying to tackle many things, Lyme disease, pneumonia, cholera, and even malaria. There's another group, microcosin, we can see it here, um, that actually came up in 1948. So again, that mid-century push to reach out and try and find as many antibiotics as possible. This is a very important one because it helps us with MRSA. It seems to be one of the potential drugs that can genuinely help us in fighting uh, resistance. And then, of course, we've got the last group, the quinolones. Now, the quinolones are going to be important because I want to talk to you a little bit at the end of the source of them. Quinolones occur in many, many, many plants, um, and clearly they're going to be important as we go forward trying to fight resistance. But there's a whole range of agents. I'll just read some of them to you. I mean, cyamycin A, thiostreptin, thiopeptide factors, pseudomonic acids, kinamycin, vancomycin, some of you will have heard of that, tycoplanin. Um, I have a gentleman here who's probably got a longer list than I've ever known because he worked in the pharma industry, so he's probably got many, many, many others. A whole range of agents that are out there. The challenge is, though, that in the industrial world, chemical synthesis has not been as, you might say, as successful or as rife as one would expect. So we have a world where we have semi-synthetic and synthetic antibiotics. Uh, we had a whole run into sulfonamide drug, drugs, the diazo drugs. That's where we had the um, many, many Nobel Prizes were given. But the crucial thing is that this has been an absolutely um, dominant field when it came to treating all kinds of infections. However, they're not great money makers, and this is beginning to become a challenge. So even though today not many are made by total synthesis and there's this semi-synthetic process, we still need to keep the store cupboard to keep the momentum going, to look at de novo synthesis of naturally occurring products. But if there's no profit in it, if there's no incentive for the large pharmaceutical companies, it's very, very difficult to motivate them to make that large investment. And in another case, we know that something like chloramphenicol, which I'm sure some of you will have used, uh, needs to be actually synthesized because the fermentation processes in the natural world are not very, very efficient. So we're in a bit of a mess because we haven't got a really well-developed, what I would call profitable line for many of, many of the pharma, and yet this is the time when we need to have as many natural products being looked at and scanned for their antibiotic properties. Now, if we go along with what's then happened... Some industries took a look at these and thought, oh, this is great. They've got all these other kinds of activities, the off-license use, for example. So tetracyclines, they're used pervasively when it comes to uh, livestock, fish, trees, you name it, insects. They can combat all kinds of infections to the point that most of the food that we have had in the past, certainly in the last two or three decades, has been touched by antibiotics in one way or another. 
So those feed additives have actually gone into the food chain and then obviously gone into the environment. The problem then is we're talking about large volumes. Tetracycline is out there at 5,000 tonnes a year into our food. That's an enormous amount of drugs to be putting into our food. Now, bacteria don't just sit still, of course. They, you know, they basically react, and they have competition amongst themselves. So there's two kinds of things that will be going on. There's natural selection. So just in case you're not so clear about why we have antibiotic resistance, what actually happens is you have a bacterium, and it meets an antibiotic agent. And in a large population, most of them will get killed off, but some, of course, will survive. Typical. However, the ones that survive can do some rather interesting things. They can continue to thrive, to continue to grow and to spread. But they can also do something interesting, which is they can do something called horizontal transfer of their DNA. So they can actually go and plonk their DNA into another organism, and it will then take over, and through the machinery, it will start reproducing it. So this horizontal gene transfer, where the DNA moves from one bacterium to another, even an unrelated one, is part of the kind of secret cache of how these bacteria can spread. So we can imagine that out in the wild, so to speak, the bacteria that are doing well, in other words, the ones that have fought off all these antibiotic agents, can not only spread their DNA, but then it turns out that when we add other things into this big cocktail, they become quite resistant to some of those. And here's where what you do as individuals becomes even more critical. Because you're not isolated. When you take a drug, when you take an antibiotic, and it goes down into the toilet and out into the water systems, it's then mixing with many, many other agents and many other um, uh, uh, substances, heavy metals and many other things. So imagine that you have the possibility in this soup of having organisms that, having defeated one part, can pass that over to another one. So this resistance actually spreads very, very easily amongst the bacterial populations. So where we look and where we find antibiotic resistance is in hospitals and in the environment. We're talking about wastewater, animal manures, agricultural runoff. If you're using antibiotics in the production line of your cattle and your livestock, obviously it's going to end up in the waste. The problem is that discharge of untreated materials going out into the, in, going out into the environment is really something that is today virtually uncontrolled. So even when you have really good wastewater treatment processes, you can find antibiotic resistance. In Canada, they found 27% of the well-treated wastewater contained resistant antibiotic-resistant bacteria. So that means over a quarter of all water is contaminated to a point where they, in some senses, have had to rethink about the whole issue of wastewater and what they're doing. So even with high investment, imagine what it's like then if you're living in the developing world where you haven't got a chance of having that. You may not even have the water because you live in uh, drought conditions. So it is extremely likely that antibiotic-resistant forms will proliferate and will spread. So overloading the environment with different types and then allowing them to do horizontal transfer leads to the next slightly nightmarish picture, which is superbugs, multi-strain resistance. So now you'll have an antibiotic that's uh, a bacteria that's absorbed the resistance 
from one place, might even have its own resistance and can absorb it from somewhere else. So these superbugs, in a sense, are, well, can we defeat them is the question. Now, the World Health Organization has really insisted that we have to take this as a global problem. There is no one country in the world that doesn't have this as a problem. Some have it in far greater um, quantities than, than anywhere else. So if we look at what's happening to humans, and there's a sort of small little diagram of how this moves around. So you've got mixed bacteria, some survive, the resistant ones multiply, they then spread, and then you move on. To the point now where we, if we look at, for example, um, E. coli, Escherichia coli isolates, resistant to a very important type of penicillin, you can see that we've got 100% resistance in some parts of the world. Now, there's a lot of grey on this map, unfortunately. So the World Health Organization manages an idea which is now coming into its own, which is essentially a surveillance system, a global surveillance system. So about 700,000 people a year die because of antibiotic resistance. Their projections are that it's going to grow to 10 million. Now, people contest that number. Nevertheless, that's the number that is out there. So with around about a million people dying, recorded as, as dying for this, from this cause, that means that every time we give out an antibiotic to a population, that potentially has the chance to escalate. What the WHO would like to do, the World Health Organization would like to do, is to not only look at where people are essentially dying from what looks like a bacterial infection, being very, very clear about what that is. Was it Escherichia coli, as here? Or was it, for example, Staphylococcus? Which was the infection that killed them? Or was it a multiple one? But can you report it in such a way that would enable the health systems to take real action. Tuberculosis is done separately, and what we can see is that where you know you have a problem, you get, in many ways, a very, very good response. But when we talk about penicillin, as an example, not only have we got 100% in some places, but it's actually now to the point where we have, even in childbirth, children who are dying because of this. So it's, it's not even getting into the major part of the population. They call it a silent tsunami, meaning that it's going to have this long, long, long impact on us. As the big crash, as the wave hits the beach, in other words, as the antibiotic resistance comes full-fledged into our world. But as a tsunami, as the wave sort of goes back and then continues to, to cause havoc, we will see a downstream impact. And so it calls for bold action. There is no point in suggesting that we're going to be able to tiptoe our way through this as a global problem. We are absolutely not. So what can we do? Microbiologists have been warning us. They're telling us there is a problem. But what can we as citizens do ourselves? So we've got 52 countries that are reporting. It's incredibly important. It means that when you know you have a problem like Mexico or others, they can actually do things, for example, they can... Um, uh, improve um, hospital care, wastewater care. There are many, many things that countries can do. But 6.5 billion people live in countries where there is surveillance. So we have a kind of challenge here because you might have surveillance but have no money to do anything about it. So when you think about the priorities and how we're going to spend money, how would you tackle this problem? 
What can you do? What's the simple messages? So I'm going to go through a roll call of things that you can do, and then we'll ask ourselves the question, well, if you're living in a country where it's a choice of food, dying, having bacteria, having antibiotics, your choices are very, very different. For here, it's really a case of overuse and misuse. I mean, I'm sure most of you have had a conversation with your doctor, which has been inconclusive, and maybe at some point in the conversation, the doctor is thinking, I wonder what I'm going to do. Oh, just give him some antibiotics. That'll probably deal with it. And certainly a few years ago, that would have been the knee-jerk reaction. What I'm saying now is your job, your duty of care as a citizen is to say, really? You really think I need that? Do you think I need it? Is it going to be very specific? And so forth. So we really need to take the prescription of antimicrobials, uh, of antibiotics, very, very seriously. Be aware that if you go on holiday, then there's going to be drug, uh, problems with the drug quality assurance systems. In many places, they're weak. They might not even have any. Poor quality medicines. There might even be suboptimal conditions and concentrations within the doses, within the tablets that you're given. There might even be the possibility that through that you get drug resistance just developing in the background. And in some countries, because there's such poor access, you get people essentially taking two of the tablets, feeling slightly better, and passing them on to the next person and on to the next person and on to the next person. So this whole issue about the standards of medicines is really crucial. Subtherapeutic doses is really an issue around animal rearing. Sometimes the cost of using them is too much, and therefore the farmer or the, 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 um, uh, the pastoralist actually just gives one dose and then maybe passes it on. So this sub-therapeutic dosing is a, clearly a problem. Um, we've got very poor prevention control, infection control, in many, many hospitals, and that's a place where we see the spread of drug resistance. And, of course, hospitalised patients. They become a reservoir for many of these. But we do know that when we see resistance, there are some things that we can do. So, for example, good clinical practice, knowing why you're giving a drug for a particular infection. Improvements in water, sanitation and hygiene. In other words, before it gets into the water system at large, can you actually contain it? Good animal husbandry. Sounds very straightforward. Um, make sure that all the medicines are used prudently by people and animals. Better diagnostics. The list is endless. There are many things that we can do. But now that I sit in a mud hut in, in the bush, I see doctors who've had a training program. They are called doctors. Their first line of defense is always an antibiotic. It doesn't matter. They will use ampicillin or they'll use ciprofloxacin. When the person doesn't get better... They throw their hands up in despair and say, oh, there's nothing else we can do. So essentially, most developing countries are at the mercy of, A, what they can afford in terms of drugs, what got left over, or what might have got sent by one of the aid agencies, USAID, DFID, whomever. And this is the slightly uncomfortable part, is that I have seen many, many shipments arrive in countries of antibiotics, um, in refugee camps all over the place. And many of them are out of date. That's one problem. But many of them are just completely inappropriate antibiotics for the place where they've been sent to. You've got people with typhus. You've got people with things that are genuinely known as tropical diseases. And then you have a repertoire of drugs in a box that's got nothing to do with it. 
So this is a duty of care of our institutions in this particular country and in all the developed countries as well. So yourself, keep yourself healthy. Make sure your vaccines are up to date. Ask about the foods that you're eating. See how much is actually displayed on the label. If not, find out. These are all things that we continue to say to consumers, but now it is a matter of life and death. It's really important that you yourself keep on top of the potential to be exposed to antibiotic resistance. However, we've still got two more things in the back pocket because it's a bit tedious being a good citizen. I know it is. So we have to do some other things, right? So in comes the next enemy. So it's nothing like, you know, your, my enemy's enemy is my friend. So fortunately, there's this thing called a bacteriophage. And it is, it, without any hesitation, I can say this, it is the Earth's single deadliest entity. It has been killing bacteria, and it's been taking them on for millions of years, right? So it's waged war on bacteria. The great thing about a bacteriophage, it's a virus. It's actually quite beautiful. Um, it's got an isohedron head. It's, you know, it looks really nice. It's got a tail and everything else. But the great thing about it is they only kill bacteria. They don't kill us. They kill bacteria. So they're like exocet missiles, and they go out there and they find them. They need a host to survive, and what happens is they land... The tail goes in like a sort of a, a syringe. It injects, the, the, um, it injects its own materials into the bacterium. It takes over the manufacturing of the bacterium, which continues to manufacture the phage until it just basically bursts. It releases lysine, makes a hole in the wall, bursts, and out go all the phages. starts all over again. So this is a really good weapon to have, all right? And, uh, yeah, it's quite, quite scary. I quite like it, actually. So how can we use it? Well, it turns out that this is a whole history of the Cold War because we do have people around the world who have had phage theory, ther therapy. In other words, it got so bad that that's where they turned to. So you can inject it. And there's a wonderful story of a man in the States where all hope was given up. They injected him with a particular bacteriophage. Three days later, he walks out like Lazarus, completely cured. So where are we on this bit of science? There are trials. There's something called the Fager-Born trial, the clinical trial. It's made up of doctors and hospitals in Belgium and in France and in Switzerland. What they do is they take two arms of a patient, of 110 patients, and on one arm, they have burned wound, burn wounds, which were infected by Escherichia coli. And on the other arm... They have one infected by a Pseudomonas species. And what they do is they look at how the bacteriophage responds to those two infections. And then they essentially compare it to what would happen either in the blind, if they didn't have any uh, treatment, or if they actually had a very specific um, antibiotic. But actually, this has been going on for a long time. I think it's quite extraordinary. The discovery of bacteriophages was back in 1915, a long, long time ago. Um, there was a Frenchman, and he said, he made an observation, he said, the phages always appeared in the stools of my Shigella dysentery patients shortly before they began to recover. And he quickly learned that bacteriophages are found wherever bacteria thrive, in sewers, in rivers, um, particularly where there's a sort of runoff and stools from convalescing patients. So he had the idea that phage therapy could be something that could be explored. So he went to go and see a guy called... Um, well, he went down to the Pasteur Institute in Paris, and he explained the idea. 
And then he formed an institute with someone else, uh, a, a Georgian called uh, Eliava, and they went to Tbilisi and they started an institute. And they began in Georgia, in Russia, in Poland, using phage therapy. And it was doing very well. And in the US at the same time, Eli Lilly and company started to do this. So things are moving along, doing quite well. Unfortunately, the early uses of phage therapy were a bit dodgy. I mean, they weren't really quite as reliable as one would have hoped. And then, of course, along comes penicillin. And it's, like a, it's just like a knockout. So the, the scientists in the labs think, mm, well, OK, maybe we'll just switch and we'll go over to penicillin. But, of course, right then, it's World War II, it's the Cold War, and the Russians didn't get that message. So they kept on going in Georgia... And they actually continued with phage therapy all the way through. Now we have antibiotic resistance. We're revisiting it. So the European Union, the USA, the drug, the drug uh, um, institutes there have started to look at really taking phage therapies very, very seriously. So back to your phage ther- therapy. Can it be an alternative strategy to combat different kinds of resistance? And the answer is probably yes. Now, they're very specific, but we've actually found that there are some phages that can even go through the blood-brain barrier and be a cure, or at least tackle meningitis. So this really is a potential game-changer. We just literally have to now take our courage in our hands and remember back in some of the times of those inspiring scientists and say, yeah, we can do this. I'm not quite as, you know, on the vanguard of that one. I, I kind of think that, you know, back in nature, we have a lot of stuff still yet to be explored. And one of the things that you'll learn more and more as you get into how your whole diet, the way and the things that you eat can really influence your health, is to take a simple statement like this. I have a friend. She's on antidepressants. And she's been on antidepressants for quite a while. And then she got an infection, and she's just not getting better. So she's getting more depressed. So she's going to get some more antidepressants. And she's still not getting better, so she better have another course of another antibiotic. Because it looks like she's got another infection, but no, it's not getting any better. So we better have some more antidepressants. What we now understand, of course, is that many of the drugs that we take for one condition compromise those of the antibiotic world that we're taking. So this combination of drugs is really uppermost in, or it should be uppermost in a doctor's mind. But most of us forget to tell the doctor about the valerian that we're taking at night, and maybe there's a bit of sage or hyssop or some things we put in our salads and some other plants that we're eating. And what you realise is as you move into this world, going back to what happened in the 1600s, is that plants are extraordinarily powerful. They have high potency... And in many cases, we don't really understand what they're doing when they interact inside our bodies. This is where I live. Um, Yeah, I live in the mud hut on the left-hand side. Okay, so, and if you come back to more of my lectures, I'm going to tell you more about what happens in the Maasai Mara. So I'm married to a Maasai chief, and I live in this village, and it's called Iwangan. So there's not a lot going on here, because it's all very, very dusty and very dry. However, uh, as you can see, these are all warriors and various things, People eat and drink plants literally all the time because certainly the gentlemen at the top who are uh, the two with the mugs, they're about 100 years old, each of them. 
they just know exactly which plant they're going to go and use. So they have never really compromised their system by mixing it with any Western drugs because their whole drug uh, cupboard is literally where they are. And they go out and they pick the various things they need. One of the things you learn as a Maasai, as a young man, when you go in the bush, is exactly all of these plants. And the fact that they're so powerful means you have to know what you're doing. There are many plants that are poisonous. Well, the plant itself may have good parts and bad parts. So part of the Maasai and many tribal um, uh, rituals and so on is to learn which parts of the plants are poisonous and toxic and which ones you can use for different kinds of diseases. So what I've been doing is working with the Libon, these are the medicine men and women in the villages, and putting together what I would call the top 20. These are plants for which we've already extracted the major, what I would call, in this case, antibiotic agents. The concentrations in some of these plants are extraordinary. I mean, seriously extraordinary. So here's a roll call of the plants and the trees that I'm working with right now. Every one of them has got strong antibiotic agents. We've brought them into the lab, I've brought them to UCL and various other places, so we've done the screening. So now the question is, how do we test the efficacy? And we're about to uh, undergo some large trials, some large clinical trials, because if you recall what happened with a plant called artemisin, which became one of the stalwarts of malaria treatments, I guarantee you that at least five of those plants, those trees, have got the makings of the next wave of antibiotics. We won't be able to necessarily use them in an industrial capacity, but the difference when you work certainly on the ground in the developing world, just as has happened in Artemisin in India, is that you have the possibility to create jobs, livelihoods, around what is essentially a local source of knowledge. And that knowledge can not only be integrated into the daily life of people, but because there's a healthy scepticism of mixing one plant with another, I mean, there are certainly trees here, the leaves and the concoctions from those leaves or the branches or the roots that you just simply don't mix together. And that's probably born out of people dying by mixing them together, but anyway, that's another matter, which I document very carefully. But the power that these plants have, both collectively and separately, is amazing. So, for example, the little one on the bottom with the orange leaf, orange croton, almost, I would say, magnifies by an order of magnitude the power of the, one of the acacias, the one with the little yellow flowers, nilotica, when it comes to treating open wounds. So if you mix the two, they become together a very, very powerful agent. Learning about that is like a whole new science. And I hope that as we go forward, that this is one of the genuine steps forward, that we can reach out into nature's uh, pharmacopoeia and not just simply say, oh, those are the kind of herbal things, the slightly weird things that people use. No, these are serious, almost industrial plants. We just need to harness them and bring them into a way where many of us could possibly benefit from them. So I'm going to leave you with just a, um, a challenge, I guess. You know yourself, I've said it, it's very, very straightforward, how to protect yourselves, how to make sure that you don't fall into a disease situation where you are exposed to uh, antibiotics that are resistant, uh, bacteria that are, are resistant to antibiotics. But there's more to it than that. We have all over the world people working on ontologies, on, on genomics, 
manipulating, in a sense, how the genome itself can be used and can be changed to give a kind of response that will protect us. So yes, what we need to do is to ensure that for as long as possible, the continuity of successful treatments continues. We need to try and prevent infections from spreading and we have effective and safe medicines. But actually, we also need to understand that knowledge has to be spread in a much, much more open and transparent way. And so combinatorial knowledge is just as important for frontline doctors as it is for you when you go to meet your doctor, when you go actually saying, I don't feel very well. And I'm hoping that as combinatorial knowledge becomes the norm, it's part of artificial intelligence, it's part of big data, it's part of how we bring all of that together in a meaningful way, that you genuinely can be equipped as citizens to think, ah, this is a time when actually I don't need an antibiotic, or this is a time when I feel better, I've taken a few tablets, maybe I'll just stop taking the rest of it and chuck them down the toilet, or, oh, I could take them back to the doctor's surgery, whatever it is. The really important thing is that you know where to get that knowledge. And because of the speed of evolution of knowledge about where plants are, where drugs are, where we're seeing resistance, those big surveillance data and so on, it's really difficult sometimes for our doctors to keep up. And this is where I say tackling this problem is not just something you give to somebody else. It is actually the problem that we all will face. It looks as if the life expectancy of many populations around the world will be shorter than the previous generation because we're exposed to pollutants and now we're exposed to a whole raft of medicines which previously worked, which are no longer effective. Do we want that to be our destiny? I doubt it. I doubt it. So using combinatorial knowledge, we can kind of step back from that bacterial doomsday and really try to understand which are the best medicines for us, should we be using them, and how can we handle them safely so that we don't contaminate the world for everyone else around us. So let's go back to the quiz. Right, okay. Question number one. Antibiotics are powerful medicines that help you fight bacteria. I hope everyone understands that now, right? Uh, not viruses, and microbes contain more than that. So that's a kind of easy one. Um, antibiotic resistance happens when my body becomes resistant to antibiotics. No, 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 no. How do we get antibiotic resistance? Gentlemen in the front row. Exactly. Bacteria get resistant, not you. All right. So it's not like you can build up your immunity to this. You can't. That's the bad news. But what you can do is try and avoid to get into that situation. Right. Third one. Antibiotic resistant bacteria can spread to humans through. Well, unfortunately, it's all of the above. Do you remember it was the contact with the person? It was touching objects. What else was there? Contact with a live animal, um, all of that, okay? So essentially, it's all out there. So wash your hands. Do all those things that are tedious but will actually protect you. Question four, what can happen if I get an infection? Well, unfortunately, all of those things. You're going to be sick for longer. You may have to go and visit your doctor again and be treated in hospital if it's really that bad. You might even need more expensive medicines, and many of them might have side effects. The best thing is just not to get sick, to be honest. Just don't get sick. So I can help tackle antibiotic resistance if I keep my vaccinations up to date. Um, make sure that you don't throw away leftover antibiotics into the toilet and certainly don't share them with anybody else. They were meant for you. Hopefully the doctor got it right. 
And if you do feel better after a few days, well, you could always take those back to the doctor who is supposed to deal with them properly. Um, you really are the first line of defence. But you're the first line of defence for all the other people who are standing literally behind you and around you. So there will be many, many discussions, I'm sure, in the press and a lot of scaremongering. And as, as our proverb said, maybe now's not the time you want to be thinking about the future. But I want to hold out to you the fact that there are solutions, there are answers, they are positive, and you certainly can make use of them. But as citizens, you have a duty of care to make sure that you don't overuse them and don't abuse them. Um, it's a very, very simple message. And I hope that tonight, when you've seen a little bit of the history and the science that's going on, that you realise that you can participate in this by becoming very, very alert to the issue of using biotics in your own life. Okay, I think that's it. Thank you. Thank you.